Remain standing, if you would, please, as we open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number 2. And as we noted last time, the writer lays out a case for us that the suffering of Jesus was appropriate. Uh, The word that is used there in verse 10 said, for it became him. And so it's uh, important for us to see this becoming and what that means. It's basically saying that it was fitting for Christ uh, to do this, for, for him to do this. In other words, appropriate. So that Christ needed to suffer not only as God, but also as man, making him uh, a completely all-sufficient Savior. It, it is what he did on the cross. Notice that. It's what he did on the cross that saves you and me. It's not anything that you've done. We simply respond to what he has done. And so we want to look at that very closely this morning. Take a look with me if you would. For context, we'll go ahead and read verse 10, and then we'll read through the conclusion of this chapter. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, For which calls, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is also able to succor them that are tempted. Thank you. You may be seated. As we've gone through this passage, one thing that is abundantly clear uh, are are the two natures of Jesus Christ. And it's of utmost importance that we grasp what it is that Christ did and the way in which he did it. Many times uh, we're quick to just kind of move on. Well, that's that's for theologians to think about. That's for professors to talk about. Uh, but not just for me. I'm just, you know, uh, Johnny Christian, and uh, I, I don't need to worry about it. No, it is important for us to under, understand that. As Brother Jeff mentioned a while ago, uh, you know, who is Christ 
And being able to answer that rightly is the key point. We need to be able to know who this Christ is. Why does he stand above the rest of them? What does it really matter that I believe that Jesus is God? Does it really matter that I believe that Jesus came to earth? Yes, these are important things because we need to know in whom we have believed. Until we know him, how in the world can we be persuaded in him that he is able to keep what we have committed. And so as we look at this, uh, this morning we're going to look once more at the humanity of Christ uh, and, and how it reveals him not only as the perfect sacrifice, but also as the perfect high priest and mediator. And we'll be going into some of this high priest and mediator stuff as we continue through the book. But I want to draw something out at the very beginning because this is something that we hear quite a lot. And it's the question that I want to start everything out, uh, and I just want us kind of getting into our mind this idea or this, this question for the topic this morning. Isn't faith a private matter? Now, you've heard it, you know, well, you know, my, my religion is private, or, or my personal feelings on Christ, that's a private thing. And, and, and it's not for anybody else to know about. It's not for anybody else to look at. It's not for anybody else. And so I want to look at that this morning. Is faith truly a private matter? And so the first thing that we're going to draw our attention to here in verse number 11, notice what it says. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I want you to notice the very first part of that, for he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified. So notice the sanctifier and the sanctified in this. The words there are agiadzon and agiadzomenoi. So those are some big ones, huh? And those, uh, those two, though, it's important for us to see these because they are both present participles. Basically, what this means when we look at what is being said, it would be uh, uh, basically saying that it's someone who has done and is continuing to do so. And so when we see this sanctifier, it is the one who has sanctified, but he is actively sanctifying. And then when we look also at the word of those who are sanctified, it is not only speaking in the past tense, they have been sanctified, but also in the present tense. Because there are two aspects uh, to sanctification, and we need to realize what this sanctifying uh, word really means. This indicates one that both did and does. The first part of this is positional sanctification. Positional sanctification comes into play because of what Christ did and because I have placed my trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Those who accept Christ's gifts of salvation, uh, gift of salvation are made acceptable now before God. This is what it means to be sanctified in the past tense of the word, should I say. The moment that someone places their trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and that alone, they are set apart by God. That's what sanctify really means, to set apart for a specific purpose. To, to, it's, it's, uh, it would be equivalent 
Um, uh, if you've ever, uh, uh, maybe you've played a game before and you're like, well, I don't need all the pieces of this because we're only playing with two players, so we don't need all 58 you know, pieces. Maybe you're playing uh, uh, Ludo. We like to play Ludo, and, and it's like, well, you got the yellow, you got the green, you got the blue, you got the red, but there's only two of us playing. And so let's set apart which color do you want. Well, which color do I want? We're going to set those apart, and the other ones are over here off to the side. That's what it really means to sanctify something, to set it apart. But it goes a little bit deeper than that because when we're talking about sanctification in the sense of what God does, he sets it apart, not just moving one to the left and one to the right, but he sets one aside for a specific purpose. And this is what sanctification is as, as far as salvation is concerned. The moment I am saved, I am now, because I have been set apart, made right with God, I am set apart now for glory and for honor, I am now acceptable in the sight of God because I am not approaching Him on my own basis. I'm not approaching him on what I can do. I'm approaching him on what Jesus did. That's positional sanctification, and that's the first part of it. Now, we don't believe and teach uh, in, uh, in sanctification being a second work of grace. What I mean by that is a lot of times people say, well, you, you, get, you ask Christ to come into your heart, and that's step one. And step two is you have to go through this sanctification process that leads you to being sinless and then you're truly saved. We don't believe that. And we don't teach that. Now, when I say we, I'm speaking on behalf of the church. You might. I hope not. And I'm going to try to help you today understand the, two, the difference. And so this idea that I am being sanctified in order to reach a sinless state and then I will be saved, that's not biblical. That's not what the Bible teaches. But we do believe in a progressive sanctification in this sense. Progressive sanctification because of what Christ did for me and because of my belief, my trust in him, I have placed my faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because of that, God takes up residence and begins to work in me. And as he works in me, the result of my positional sanctification is God working in me to conform me to become more like his son. This is progressive sanctification in its biblical sense. So, I'm walking down the path of life. I encounter Christ. I see him for all of his glory and all of his wonder. I am driven to my knees and I profess him and I accept his gift of forgiveness. I turn from my wicked way and I am now moving toward Jesus Christ. I am sanctified. In other words, I am made right before God. But as I make my way and I continue to walk through this Christian life, the Holy Spirit of God that dwells within me says, hey, you know that habit that you have of using God's name in vain? You're going to stop doing that. You know that habit you have of tailgating? Anybody enjoy being tailgated? I've never met anyone in my life says, I love it when I look in my rearview mirror and I can't see their headlights. I love that. 
I look forward to driving down the road and not say, I just, it, 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 if it was like, you know, it's me, and then all of a sudden, there's just like blue behind my white car. I love that. No one says that. Why do people do it? You want to talk about getting under my fingernails. It's, it's just like fungus on my toe. I can't stand it. Just want to lock the brakes up, you know. That's the Adamic nature. And when I have someone, I look up in my rear view and I'm going, are you kidding me? The old me wants to lock him up and just watch the smoke fly. Go ahead and hit it, buddy. I need a new car. But the Holy Spirit inside me says, Andy, chill out. Sometimes it's the woman in the seat next to me saying, But the Holy Spirit says, listen. And so I'm driving and I, I just, and then I, and nice and calmly, I pull over to the other lane, let them go, and I give them the holy stare, you know. You know what you did was wrong. You know, it's one of those. See, the Holy Spirit will work inside you to change some of those things. So as I'm making my way through life, I am progressively being set aside in the sight of men to become a more acceptable revelation of him before them. Positionally sanctified. It's done. Takes place at the moment of justification. Progressively throughout the rest of my life, I surrender and submit to the work of the Holy Spirit to be progressively sanctified and made more into his dear son's image so that before you I can give a good example of him this is what is being said in verse number 11 when he says for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one you see we we need to realize the brotherhood of Christ with the believers we are all of one, in other words, of one source. This, get, catch this for just a minute. This disrupts any idea of a universal fatherhood of God. There's a teaching out there today that, you know, we all God's children, and they're referencing saved and unsaved as well, all God's children, now stop for a minute. Even Jesus said to, the, to the, some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said, no, 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 your father is the devil. And so there are, uh, there are other people. How would you like to have that? Holy cow pies. You know, here you are, you know, you're religious and you're, you've got, your, uh, you've got your, all your religiosity on and everything and you're walking with the right head coverings and the right robes and everything's just so-so and you've prayed the right prayers, you've tithed the right amount, you've given all this and you've done all that and then somebody that doesn't even have a house walks up to you and says, you're the son of the devil. There's a lot of people out there that think they're a son of God. They're nothing more than a son of the devil. It's important for us to realize that there is no universality as far as the fatherhood of God, nor is there a universal brotherhood of Jesus. Only those who by faith trust in him for salvation are the sons of God and brothers of Jesus Christ. Only those. 
born again by the Spirit of God. I remember when I was uh, working with kids all the time, uh, we bring them in and, and we get into the habit of brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so and brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so. And, and that's fine if people want to do that. I don't, I, that's okay. But for me, I had, a, I, had a, I had a rough spot because I had a bunch of kids. I took them to camp and we were over there and there were some kids that, I'm, I'm not trying to be judgmental, I'm just calling it what it was. They're no more saved than the seat you're sitting in. And they were referring to one another as brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so. I thought to myself, am I teaching something in this that maybe I need to correct? You ever catch yourself talking to somebody at a store and you say, well, brother, uh, I mean, you just kind of get in such a habit of saying brother and sister. You start calling everybody brother and sister. Not everybody's your brother. Not everybody's your sister. People say, why do you say uncle all the time? Well, Y'all say brother, I'll say uncle. I've had people come in before, are you related to everybody here? No. You see, the positional sanctification immediately makes us acceptable for God, but the progressive makes us acceptable before men, and this is where the brotherhood begins to show up. You see, the preacher begins here. Look at verse number 12 with me. Because the preacher begins not only proclaiming Jesus is the way, uh, Jesus in this way, but he, he illustrates it from the Old Testament. Go back, if you would, to Psalm 22. Keep your hand in the book of Hebrews and go to Psalm chapter 22. Keeping your hand in the book of Hebrews there so that we can kind of go back and forth between them. Hebrews chapter number 2, verse number 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church while I sing praise unto thee. Here we are, Psalm chapter 22. Look at verse 22 with me if you would. I would declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. This congregation, this church idea is pretty much the same idea. We get our English word church. Uh, the etymology of it is really pretty interesting if you ever take the time to study. In the Greek, it's the word ekklesia, which literally means called out assembly. And over the course of time, because don't forget English is a Germanic word, not a Greek or a Latin word, the, uh, the Germanic word started to become kirche and then kirk, and then it kind of just slowly brought its way down to church. And so we use the same word church because of the Germanic origins, but it's from the, or from the Greek ekklesia, this called out assembly or gathered together group of fellow believers. Back here in the 22nd Psalm, this is a psalm that is, uh, is prophetic in its sense, all about the suffering servant of, uh, of God. This is a psalm of David. When we get to verse 22, it starts talking about the praise and the worship of the Lord. And he says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst 
of the congregation while I praise thee. And so the writer of Hebrews, don't forget who his audience is. It would be uh, uh, equivalent. He starts quoting from the, from the psalm. He's quoting from like the hymn book. Hey, do you remember this hymn that we always sing? And so it automatically brought to, to their minds uh, an idea of the brotherhood of those who are uh, children of God. And so when we see what's going on in this, I want you to notice something else. The very next verse, look at verse 13 in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. And so the writer of Hebrews starts to quote from another area of the word of God. Remember when you see this, that we, we talked about this uh, several weeks ago, that these are not proof texts. They are just texts to help bring to remembrance all of what was said. There's a difference between proof texting and, and uh, trying to remind some people of some things. But what we find in verse 13, we go back to the book of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter number 17, or chapter number 8, I'm sorry. Isaiah chapter number 8. Now, in Psalm 22, we had the exaltation of Christ. And keep in mind that that word congregation was in reference to the, uh, to the group of fellow believers. Here in Isaiah chapter number 8, a lot of people will connect what is being said in, in Isaiah or in Hebrews chapter 2 to two separate portions of Isaiah. Some even go into one of the Psalms. Uh, but I believe that that whole verse 13 can be summed up right here in Isaiah chapter 8. Look at verse 17 with me, if you would. It says, and I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob. Go again, flip over to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13. Again, I will put my trust in him. This idea of waiting on the Lord is I trust. And so we find that in verse 17, I will wait upon the Lord. And then you keep looking, keep reading it, and uh, uh, the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Verse 18, behold, I... And the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Now, we got to go through just a real brief synopsis of what's taking place here in Isaiah. Because when we see the whole brotherhood idea, because we're bouncing off of uh, verse 11, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And then when we get into Isaiah, or Psalm 22, we can see it. Isaiah may be a little bit more difficult. So we, we need to see what is being said in this. In Isaiah, the people had lost their fear of God. And if you go back just a couple chapters and you see Isaiah's sons, one of them was named uh, based off of um, uh, what was taking place and the other one was named, you can actually see it in uh, chapter number uh, seven and uh, chapter number seven and chapter number six. If you kind of go back and read through this, for sake of time, I'm not gonna do that. Uh, but the people, as you get to chapter number 8, they have lost their fear of the Lord. And so God is speaking through his prophet Isaiah, and he, he wants them to come to a place where now Isaiah uh, and his children are going to be a sign or a message. And so the people, in losing their fear of God, Isaiah presents himself 
and his children as a sign and message of salvation. In other words, if you follow what I'm doing and if you come and you go after the direction that I'm taking you, you see where I'm heading. If you follow, you're going to see salvation. But if you don't, you won't. And so from that moment on, you have this idea of Isaiah and his sons being brethren. We are leading the way and we are going to show and we are kind of making our way through. To connect all this, you've got to go back to Hebrews again, chapter number 2, verse 10. See what it says there. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. This word captain is archegos. It is from the root which would be arche, which means ruler, or it can be translated beginning. Kind of an interesting word actually. A literal translation of this could be, uh, could be from the beginning of a ruler, can be literally translated, though, as pioneer. Think about it. Talking about the captain of our salvation. In other words, the one who is over it, the one who leads the charge. Catch that leader, that leader idea. Here we have Isaiah and his children, his sons, They were leading the way. If you see the direction I'm going, and if you follow, you're going to experience salvation. But if you don't, you're on your own. Now, when we get to Jesus as this other type, or now he is the messenger, just like Isaiah was supposed to be a type of a messenger or a picture, Jesus is the actual one. And he says time and time again, when someone says, hey, what do I need to do to be saved? What does he say? Follow me. Follow me. And so all that followed him, what did he call them? Brothers. He says, for this reason I call you brothers. Because you do the will of my Father. And so as Jesus is making his way through, Christ came to earth as a man. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, they all lead to the glory of Jesus Christ. He is our pioneer, the one who opens the way, the only one. And if we follow him, we find salvation. If we try any other means, we're on our own. I want you to notice the next thing here before we try to bring everything full circle. Notice what it says in verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I want you to notice that flesh and blood rendered Satan powerless. Now we looked at this last week in verse number 10. It was fitting for him to suffer for us. But I want you to see something that is absolutely amazing. Jesus did not come 
as an angel. Look what it says in verse 16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. I want you to grasp the reality of the situation here. God did not set out to redeem the angels. He set out to redeem you. Don't miss that. God did not set out to redeem angelic beings. He set out to redeem man. Why in the world would he do that? <laughs> angels, catch this, angels don't die. And death was what was required. That's first. But second, since Christ did not come for the angels but came for man, angels were not made in his image. But man was. Everything that we see in Scripture comes right back to the idea of the image of God. We don't want to miss the image of God. We don't want to mess it up. When we read about the, uh, the, the Canaanites and, and their, their worship of the god Moloch, it was an improper view of God. It had to be done away with. When, uh, when Moses was up on Mount Sinai and he's, he's up there and he's getting the tablets from God and God says, Hey Moses, you got some people down there on the ground dancing around like a bunch of morons in front of a golden calf. You need to go down there and take care of them. He didn't say it that way. That's the Andy Lake paraphrased edition. But... When we come across those, we need to understand why this is so important. God's image was being tainted. Angels weren't made in the image of God. And so in the Old Testament times, the Hebrews would have recognized that Christ, the pre-existent Christ, God would at times come down in the form of an angel. And this is why we see things like the angel of the Lord appeared before them. And so he would come down in maybe some sort of a form like that. But when Christ came, he came as a man, flesh and blood. It is through the death of Jesus, the man, Jesus Christ, that we are saved. It's through his death. As we read this and we see the power of death, look at verse number 14. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part in the same, that through death he might destroy him that had power, the power of death, that is, the devil. You see, the power of death kind of refers to this idea of separation that sin brings. We, we've got to remember that death, there's, there's death as in, you know, uh, I'm alive and one day I'll be dead. But death is essentially separation from life, as deep as that may sound. And what did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and... We've got a couple people still awake. I am the way, the truth, and... There we are. Wake your neighbor up and say, say that word next time. If Jesus is the life, death comes in to separate us 
from that life. Sin puts that wedge between man and God. Sin is what makes us spiritually dead. And because of sin, Satan has power. In other words, he looks and says, you're perfect and he needs to die. You're perfect. He's a dirty, rotten sinner. You're perfect. You can't have fellowship with her. And for all of our time past, all that, were, uh, that, that had lived and all that had died, and they were dying sinners, they were living, and they knew that they weren't perfect. They were all under bondage to this sin because here's the accuser coming in, and he's looking at God and saying, you can't have a relationship with that guy. Look at him. And Satan had power. And so God said, but look at this one. You see, my son, Jesus, he was perfect. And he took their payment. He took the penalty of sin and death for them. And if they follow him, Satan has no more power over you. God disarmed Satan through man, flesh and blood. This power of death and sin, if you were to cross-reference this back to John chapter 8, it talks about Satan being the author of sin. And then Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So Satan is a murderer. Satan uses the fear of death, physical as well as the separational idea of death. He uses that and holds it over people to gain control over you. He tries his best to, to make you fear this idea of being separated from God or just dying in general. He wants you to cling to this life and to the things that you have so strongly that you are rendered ineffective. Once a person comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, then Satan comes on double time and he says, oh, even as a Christian, I can still make you ineffective. You call yourself a Christian and you did that. God can't use you. You call yourself a Christian and you reacted that way. God can't use you. You call yourself a Christian and you looked at that, God can't use you. You call yourself a Christian and you, you treated your wife that way, God can't use you. And Satan loves to use that. But we've got to look back at what Christ did on the cross. And we need to remember that Christ's death, it was about paying all of our sin penalty from the past all the way through the, uh, the, the future. Anything that we have done, anything that we are doing, anything that we will do, Christ paid for that one. And when Satan says, God doesn't like you anymore, God doesn't want you anymore, God can't use you anymore, look at him and say, back off, buddy, I'm his. He died for me. And yes, I failed. But he's faithful. 
He's just. And he promised to forgive me of that one too. So shut up. Kids love it when I say this. Parents cringe. And the devil hates it even more. He has no power over me anymore. Because of what Christ did on the cross. And because that's been applied to my life. The Lord has revealed clearly who Jesus was. Notice there in verse 16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. But he took on him the seed of Abraham. So whenever that little idea may pop into your head. Yeah but you know you're a man. Jesus is God. Don't forget Jesus became man. So that you would be paid for. Jesus made it clear. God made it clear who Jesus was. Notice this, and we'll start to make our conclusion here. The sympathetic high priest that is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17 with me, if you would. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Let's take a look at this and understand what's being said. You see, the humanity of Jesus being born into a poor family in the ghettos of Nazareth. You remember they said, what, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is, a, this is a kid from the wrong side of the tracks. Smelled kind of funny. Didn't have mom, dad teaching. Well, no, he did have mom, dad teaching right there. No. But he was one of those kids that people would look at and say, there's, there's, there's nothing good going to happen from that. Nothing good's going to come from that place. He was poor. Son of man didn't have a place to call home. Foxes even have that. Son of man didn't. He knew what it was to be rejected. He knew what it was to be despised. He knew what it was to go hungry. You notice that humanity of Jesus there. And that's what it says. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God. This idea of being a faithful and merciful high priest. You know, it's, uh, it's funny. Sometimes you listen to people give advice and you're like, well, that works good for you, but you don't understand where I'm coming from. Uh, I love it when sometimes somebody will say, well, you, yeah, it's easy for you to say because you're a pastor. You don't understand. I, haven't, I wasn't born a pastor, people. <laughs> so what do you, yeah. you got a boy. Thus says the Lord. Now, it wasn't the way it happened, okay? Right. <laughs> My mom and daddy are in the audience today. They can tell you <laughs> he weren't not he weren't that guy. No, uh-uh. But sometimes we forget 
He can understand anything. You see, the idea of this merciful high priest, the priest was the one that was supposed to be able to advise you and help you know right from wrong. The priest was the one that was supposed to take and show you how you could uh, be right with God, but then he was also to help you see how you can maintain that godly lifestyle. And when we go to someone who doesn't understand, it makes it difficult for us. But he's a wonderful high priest. He doesn't turn you away because, huh, look at this little lamb you brought. It's not completely, look at that. It's got a little cut. I just walked 4,000 miles. Of course it's going to have a little cut. Yeah. No. He's not going to look at your meager offering and say, well, that's not enough. You need to come back and do better. No, he's faithful. He's merciful. As the high priest, he helps us not only make the atonement, but he gives us grace to keep from sinning. If we do sin, we've got to remember that we also have an advocate. Notice what it said there. Faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them. People are like, well, that's an old word. It just means help. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The word succor was used because the Greek word that is used there doesn't just mean to give aid. It doesn't just mean help. It means to run to the rescue of. To get help to you as quickly as possible. It's as if, you know, you, 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 it's, I don't know, maybe it's just, it's just us, but you know how it happens. Firstborn child, you know, you take them out there, you strap them into a swing with an 18-point harness, and you know, you're, you don't let go of the swing. Just kind of go back and forth, and don't let go of the swing. By the time your third one comes along, just go. They're just on a, they're just on a rope, no seatbelts, nothing. Just, just jump off the tree, son. It'll be all right, you know. But you know what it's like that first time you hear that blood-curdling scream from a child, you know, and every head turns, and everybody, and people are getting up and they're running. You see people that haven't run for years, man. They can move pretty quick when a child's screaming, right? And by the time they get out there, and the kids just looking, well, and their legs like hanging off or something. I don't know what to do. You get there as quick as you can. You succor. That's what that word means. It's not just nonchalantly walking up, going, go ahead. I can remember two instances in my life that give an example of this. One, I was skiing with my dad. And dad said, slow down, son. Slow down, son. Come down to this one little spot, and I needed to turn to go down to the next trail. And guess what? When I turned, I kept on sliding. I kept on sliding right down the bank. There I was, 
about 10 feet down in a bank. A little bit later, Dad skis up. And hold just pole, pole down like that. I'm looking, going, just help me, Dad. <laughs> Come on. And so I had to climb, and I'd climb up a little bit, and then I'd reach, and I, oh, I can't get it back down the bank, I guess. Come on, Dad! Told you to slow down. <laughs> That's help. When I was young, I was riding my neighbor's bicycle that didn't have brakes. And I come, and I mean, I was flying down that hill, and I came around, and I went to hit those brakes, and the wheel just went back like that. And that brake, that bike just went sliding straight down. I slid about 100 feet on the pavement. You know, my legs looked like Adidas pants. And I let out a blood-curdling scream. Man, I didn't know Mom and Dad could run that fast. That's a securing moment. They came down as quick as they could. They weren't just offering help. They came down. They picked me up. They took me back to the house, cleaned me up. That's our Savior. For in that he himself have suffered being tempted, he is able to run to your rescue when you are. If you let him. If you let him. But I want to go back to verse number 11. And this is where we're going to finalize everything. See, the original question that I posed was, isn't my faith a private matter? Really haven't dealt too much with that now, have we? But I want you to look at verse number 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. If you mark or highlight in your Bible, I want to encourage you to put neon lights around that phrase. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. You see, this highlights one of the main differences between us and him. Ashamed is not about embarrassment. Being ashamed is more about our actions toward Him. It's not about our feelings. It's about what I do because of my relationship with Him. And as we've looked at all of this, the one that sanctifies, look, I know I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, but Christ makes me right and able to be in the presence of God. Because of that and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God within me. And as I make my way through this life, I focus on what the Holy Spirit is telling me and what He is teaching me and what He is asking of me. And I start to let go of the old life and embrace more and more and more the new one. And I become more into His image because of all this. Because God became flesh and blood and He removed the penalty of sin. He he took it for you. He paid your price because of everything that He has done. No longer does Satan hold power over me anymore. No longer am I ever, ever able to be ashamed of Him. 
after salvation, I still mess up. And he still remains ever my mediator before the throne of God. Am I ashamed of him? Now, before we go, no, 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 no. I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you something. Are you willing to tell somebody about Jesus? You can hear cotton ball drop sometimes, Tim. Tim's got tracks sitting over there on the table. When's the last time you handed one to somebody and said, read this, it changed my life? When's the last time we were paying at the register at Lowe's or I'm not going to say the other one's name. And you just look at the lady and say, I don't know if anybody's told you today that Jesus loves you. Or are we too ashamed to do that? Are we too ashamed to simply put a track in the bill that we're putting in the mail? Am I willing to tell that coach no? Am I willing to tell my child no? Because of our commitment to Christ and His house? Am I unwilling to say no to this world and yes to God? I mean, think of it, do, do, I, do I turn away from what I know is right because it's not popular? Because, uh, you know, people aren't, I'm, I'm going to lose followers on Facebook if I, if I say something about Jesus. Ask yourself this, do my actions match my words? I'm not ashamed to proclaim Christ, but I'm not going to obey Him. I'm not ashamed to put that fish on my car, but when He says, Thou shalt and thou shalt not, I'm going to ignore that one. When my child comes up to me and says, Why can't I do it? You do. Am I ashamed of Jesus? Am I ashamed of what He has done for me? So do my actions match my words? And then last, do I allow the pressure from this world to alter my direction? Or do I depend solely on the Word of God? I was talking with the Sunday school teachers this morning. I'm tired. Tired. I'm tired of hearing people put words into God's mouth that were never there to begin with. For God so loved the world, that includes the homosexual. But we ain't waving no rainbow flag because God hates sin and homosexuality is sin.
I'm tired. Tired of seeing people proclaiming the name of Christ. Ashamed to stand on right. You know how it is. I'm sure you know how it feels as well. And you just kind of wonder. Who will stand in the gap? You have the world over here saying one thing, but you have God over there saying the other. Who is going to be in the gap bringing people to Christ? Or are we all ashamed? Well, I'm not going to go talk to those people because they don't want to hear it. No, it's because we're ashamed. And shame on us. Isn't my faith a private matter? No. Privacy isn't go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But not, not those people. Yes, those people too. Well, not these ones over here. Yes, those ones over there too. But not me. That's for the preacher. No, you, all of us, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Unless you're ashamed, then it's time to just own it. Verse 11. He's not ashamed of me. He calls me his brother. And because of all he has done for me, I'll never be ashamed of him. Stand with me if you would. Father, We come to this place, Lord, in the service where it's time for man to make a decision. It's time for us to be serious about what you've called us to do. It's time for us, Father, as a corporate body, as a church, but also, Father, as individuals to lay aside whatever it is that you have been stirring in our hearts to lay aside. It's time for us to quit playing church and to simply do what we know you want us to do. Father, it's time for us to learn how to love people the way you love them. It's time for us to learn how to open our mouths and proclaim the truths in love of Jesus Christ. It's time for us, Father, to take the truth of who you are to this lost and dying world. It's time for us to admit we've been ashamed in certain areas and no more am I going to do this. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God that brings salvation. Father, it's time for us to hit our knees. Beg your forgiveness for remaining silent. Father, help us, Lord, in this. 
If there be anybody here today, Lord, that doesn't know you as Savior, I pray, Father, that you would look down into the very heart of man. Pull out what you need to pull out so that they see their need of you. Father, if there's any here that, Lord, they've been ashamed of you and they didn't know it, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would expose in their mind this very moment the thing that you need them to address. Don't expose in our mind what somebody else needs to address, but, Father, what we need to address. And be careful, Father, to thank you for everything that you do. As you're so gracious to us and so good, use this time to call men unto yourself. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.